I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, folks, welcome back to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're really excited to have Dr. David Camp back on the show. We spoke with him uh, last year about uh, the White Ally Toolkit and how to have better conversations between uh, white allies about race. And given everything going on right now, Dr. Camp's really the perfect person to talk about, uh, to talk to about this stuff. And I, I really like chatting with folks whose uh, educational backgrounds is extensive and also not at all the, the most important, impressive thing about their mm-hmm. bio. <laughs> Dr. Camp has a, a bachelor's degree in comp- computer science from Princeton, a master's degree in public policy from Berkeley, and a PhD in urban planning from, from Berkeley. But what he's really known for publicly is having better conversations about race. And he's written a number of books about it. He has a method for conversation about it. And he has a, a set of tools called the White Ally Toolkit. Uh, so, and you can go the, to the whiteallytoolkit.com to learn more about them. So, Dr. Camp, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and we talked with the, the toolkit, um, the methodology, the RACE methodology, all these things we talked about in our previous show with Dr. Camp. So we're not going to waste his time get, you know, asking him in, in depth about those again. Everyone who's listening now, we're assuming that you've listened to that previous episode, which is linked in the show notes. So if you haven't, you, may, you will either want to catch up now or if you're like, Eric, come on, man, I'm driving. I can't. So listen to this and then, and then catch up with episode one right afterward. So, Dr. Camp, I know that you've worked on some new books and some new e-courses that are relevant to the times that we live in. So maybe before we get into the meat of the conversation, we'd love to hear about those. Sure. So since COVID and, you know, I miss the days when we could travel, I've had to figure out how to continue to expand my work and try to help people have better dialogue by uh, courses online. And what I've done is to translate my my work where I show up to places and give a, a day of half day or day long workshop into something different into an e-course online. And it's really funny to find that I think I and the, the participants get more satisfaction because what you can do in an e-course is to coach people over time. My courses are modeled on a learning platform, which means that ultimately most of the work happens in between sessions. But what I get to do in these e-courses is I give people a little assignment and then they go out and the assignment is going to involve going out and having a conversation in a different way. 
in a way that involves more curiosity, essentially more compassion and more purposeful strategy. And again, I can summarize the race method briefly if you want me to do that. And then people come back and report how that went. And then I give them a next assignment. Your next assignment is to go a little further into the method. And, and, and we try to get people, you know, to put their, you put your toe in the water, but you put your, your whole leg in the water and that's before you start swimming. So it's a, it's a progressive learning environment. And I find that I think I get more out of it as a coach. And I think people actually learn more because shifting to a different way of conversation is difficult in our argument oriented culture. And this, and this is all about shifting to storytelling and to listening. And it's a, so people have to make a kind of a leap in their head and some, some of a leap in their heart and spirit to do this. So that's one, that's, that's a, that's a new thing I'm doing. So I, I should have been doing that years ago, but, and obviously COVID is horrible, but it has pushed me to do something I should have been doing a long time ago. And then also I've written a couple of other books to try to capture my methods so that uh, people can access them that way. Okay, I'm convinced we should probably re-go over the the race method and give you a minute to, shall we say, expand on that. Sure, no problem. I'll do it. I'll do it quickly. So the race method means reflect, ask, connect, expand, and so it's 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 easy to understand but hard to do for some people. So reflect means stop, calm down, try to relax, try to get in touch with your intention, just to get ready for the conversation. If and if you have to leave the table, leave the room for a second to go to the bathroom and relax. That's fine. Hopefully you will have practiced some relaxation methods to prepare you to to get that. Second, ask. You're in disagreement with a disagreeing conversation with somebody at some point, especially they say something you don't really think is wrong. What you want to do is to lead by asking questions. Ask them a question that's going to get them to go below their experience, below their belief to their experience that drives the belief. So you want them to basically tell you a story. You want to push the ask enough questions so they are telling you a story, not just recanting their not recounting their belief. Third, uh, connect. What you want this is on some level a, the hardest part because you want to try to agree with the person about something before you disagree. So it's you know ABC agree before challenging, right? So ultimately, you want to find a piece of what they said that you can agree with, even if you can't agree with the core thing, to, so that you're trying to make sure that they know you're not part of an opposing tribe. At least have that feeling of I'm, I'm connected with this person. And then so reflect, ask, connect and expand. So you do all that that I just described before you try to invite them to new thinking uh, by telling, uh, telling them a personal story. Again, you're, you're, the connect is going to be a personal story that illustrates that you're connected with them. And the expand is also a personal story that tries to illustrate the new belief, the new way of looking at things that you're inviting them to. So just to be clear, in, when I, in, on racial topics, I call that the race method, reflect, ask, connect, expand. In my uh, recent book, Compassion Transforms Contempt, it's all about not talking about racial issues. I change it to call it the REACH method so that people can remember it. And that stands for reflect, inquire, English spelling with an E, agree, coax, and honor. So it's the same method. It's just a slightly, it's a different acronym so people can remember it for the kind of experience they're having. And something that I really love about your approach to conversation is, I mean, you mentioned this just a moment ago, the very first step of the race method, which is the R, the reflect, and it's kind of take a moment to prepare, be aware of your intentions and be aware of your own state of mind. And something that we have not had the chance to do at Reconsider yet, we had this this week that we were going to call Stoicism Week that got pushed because of everything that has been happening in the last month and a half. And we'll do this later, but it's this idea of being aware of where you are in in the moment and you 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 wrote a really beautiful piece recently on June 
3rd that folks can read at the whiteallytoolkit.com where you reference the Dalai Lama a lot. And there are so many uh, similarities between Stoicism and Buddhism that have to do with being aware of where you are in the moment and and you offer and in a way stoicism and certain aspects of the mindfulness involved in buddhism offers practical things that you can do on your own the introspection that prepares you for the moments when you do need to be more aware in order to start connecting with other people and just a couple of the quotes that you you cite in this piece and that you expand upon that I encourage all of our listeners to go read. One is the quality or purity of any spiritual practice is determined by the individual's intentions and motivation. The idea that, you know, you actually want to accomplish something. And I really like this one. Do not let the behavior of others destroy your inner peace because it is so easy to be angry nowadays. And if your, your intent is to make progress, then you know, it, this kind of goes to the Stoicism idea that uh, Aurelius uh, and Epictetus often talk about, which is, you know, if you get angry over, you know, someone else's response, then you're essentially just letting them control your emotions. And I, I just really thought that that was a, a beautiful writing, a beautiful essay, and I'd encourage people to listen to it. I appreciate that. I mean, and, and here's the irony, right? There's a, there's a particular irony around the racial issues on that, because as, as a person of color who totally supports white people coming to the racial equity movement and wanting to be involved in it. That's fantastic. But I tell people it is fine for you to be angry out in the street. Like when you're out in, you're at a protest, I mean, angry, not violently, but if you're, but, but if you, if you want to stop traffic, if you want to cause a ruckus, you want to challenge the, um, challenge the authorities, that's great. And, And having, being angry is, it can be helpful with that. But when you're at home, Talking to talking to grandma when you're talking to your cousin, I don't need you to be angry. I need you to be effective. And so what that means is making a kind of a shift. Like, okay, that anger is good there out in the street, but it is not good when you're talking to your cousin Molly. When you're talking to Molly, I need you to calm down and think and get, connect with your intention. My intention is to is to um, influence this person to be different. And people are less likely to be influenced if you are bringing them anger. If you if you're basically telling them that you're wrong, you have a problem, you're thinking wrong, you're probably a racist, that whole anger and condescension are not helping your communication goals, right? So it is asking people to make a kind of, it's almost like a spiritual shift. It is a mindfulness shift. Okay, I'm gonna put that anger aside right now because I'm doing something different. I'm trying to build rapport with somebody to influence them. That's what I need as a person of color. That's what I need allies to do. And although being angry in the street is fine, but don't be angry when you're talking to your, Cousin Clive. 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 <laughs> Clive. Uh, it's, it's sorry. For all of our listeners named Clive, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I mean, it, Clive is a beautiful human being. We, yeah. we, we respect Clive. Yeah, just, just somehow the way you say it, it's like, you guys know Clive, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, God, yeah, we do. Um, actually, I, you know, one of, one of the things I've been really excited to talk to you about is I know, I know you've written some, a number of pieces that have gotten published externally, kind of all over the place. I'm even forgetting everywhere they got published, but we'll have them in the show notes. But I, I think you, I seem to remember you commenting that there was a sea change going on right now. And we talked about this a little bit just before the show. And I, I remember getting some pushback from a, a few folks in my more progressive circles that, you know, okay, great. Like white people are, are fired up right now. 
are posting stuff on Facebook. Some of them are in the streets, even by golly. And, you know, and it's just all gonna, it's all just gonna like fizzle out. It's, and, the, thing, it's the thing right now. It's, it's cool to be anti racist right now, right? That's what they're, right. that's what a more cynical interpretation of that is, right? Exactly. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering what you've observed, you know, it, and I think we wanna rely on you as someone who is one, deeply connected, and two, a turbo expert. <laughs> On the topic of, you know, how white people are talking about and thinking about racism in America, I even remember last time we talked, one of your goals was to flip this 45-55 number where where 55% of white Americans thought that black people did not face more racism in the United States than white folks. And you wanted to flip that number. So it became 55 said, yes, black people in America face more racism than whites. But uh, to turn it over to you, I, I think you know there's what what I'm what I'm curious about is from what you're seeing, what indicators do you have that we're seeing somewhat of a, a permanent change in how we're talking about race and thinking about race and seeing racism in the United States versus you know versus where does this seem ephemeral and are there any kind of are there any kind of novel narratives or conversations that are emerging that are just not just more but different than you've seen in the past. Well, I mean, the nature of um, the nature of permanent shifts is that you don't know they're permanent until you know they're permanent. Right? Uh, that's so, the, yeah. so that's the nature. That's the nature of that. But my understanding, I mean, you, you've you've pushed me to look up something I should have looked up before we uh, before we got on this broadcast, which is what is the portion of white people who think that there is a systemic problem with the police? My understanding is that that has gone up from like forty percent around the time Michael Brown died in Ferguson. To around 65 percent now. I think I've I've seen I've seen polling data that says that. Now, will there be reversion back uh, when the, when all of the protests end? I don't know. We can't we can't know that. My suspicion is is that we might have crossed a barrier on that now. So so that's number one. Number uh, related to the statistic that I cite, which is historically, I mean, over the past uh, five years, that fifty five percent of white folks think that racism against people of color is no bigger as of a problem than racism against white people. My suspicion is that that's shifted also along with the shift that I just mentioned. That's my suspicion. My suspicion is that some of that will maintain. So um, the question becomes, so the, some, of, some of what I wanted to do with this project might have happened by events, but there's still a significant portion of white people who like, you know, th- their definition of racism and their understanding of racism is such that they don't believe that there are bigger picture problems, right? That, so that they, they're still in the, what was the 55% uh, group and who might be shifted now, but they still believe that. So there's still work to be done, right? There's still, and, and that's, the, that's the point of my project. There's still work to be done by the people, by the white folks who think racism is a problem to, there's still work to be done on the rest of the people because as long as uh, a big portion of white folks basically are in, let's call them, let's call it denial for the moment. But I I tend not to call people deniers because I find that I I don't want them to be insulted. I tend to call those people racism skeptics because they're skeptical that racism as people of color is a thing. But as long as a significant portion of white folks are in that group, then that's going to limit anything we do to try to address racial issues. Now, what makes me think that this shift is permanent well, again, we can't know it's permanent until we know. I, th- I think that it has not been, it has not happened before that you've had, you know, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of white folks out in the street. I mean, many, uh, um, actually making a difference on it, or at least trying to make a difference on this. That That is a new phenomenon, which I think is a good phenomenon. Now, <laughs> too, too many of y'all were at the front 
throwing throwing bricks through glasses. So I've seen so many, I've seen so many tapes of like black people trying to get the white people to stop doing that. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, that makes sense because you know these these are these uh, often people of color's own communities, and they're gonna get the, they're gonna be the ones that get in trouble if the white folks do this, right? But so that notwithstanding, I think that. I think a sh- my suspicion is a shift has happened. That shift has come about from a combination of factors. It's come about from 30, 40 years of critical race theory, as much as the conservative people complain about that, affecting people's education in college. It came, it's, it's come about because of, you know, all the books that are now all best, all these best-selling books on the New York Times bestseller list. But these, many of these uh, texts that this describe racism have been, have, have, um, have had some currency in the culture for a while, even though they're particularly popular now. Um, and of course, then there, there's, you know, there's the there's the left leaning media that has basically said racism is a real thing. And, and that and, and the fact that they've been doing that is part of what is causing a part of is a reflection of a cultural divide. Right. That, so you have a whole bunch of people who complain about the left wing media large somewhat because of that whole thing. Right. And we could we could talk about the the roots of the um, of racism denial within the conservative movement and how that has been unfortunately stoked. And we could talk about that because I think ultimately part of what the move forward is going to be progressive people trying to engage conservative people to construct an anti-racist conservatism, right? And we need that, we need that to happen at, at the high levels of thought leaders, but we need that to happen on the ground too. So, and part of, so part of what happens is that people People, uh, because the conservative movement has been stoked to be racism denying. So when people are trying to fight uh, in, in, in sort of day to day people trying to have day to day conversations, part of what happens is, is that people want other people to not just not be not racist, but also because that's associated with being conservative. People feel like their conservatism is under attack. It's understandable because we haven't seen an anti-racist conservatism on, on some level. What has to happen is. People have to engage in the process of constructing that. And so, so when I try to tell people that when you're trying to talk to a conservative person about racism, you are not trying to make them not conservative because that goal, I mean, that goal is, it will undermine your message. And plus, they, they don't mind their point of view. And if, they, if, if you were, if someone was trying to change your perspective, your ideology, you wouldn't like it either. So you actually, um, it is valuable for you, for your anti-racism work to to believe that they can be anti-racist conservative, even if you've never seen that, you need to believe that that's possible so you can work on, I'm working on your views about racism. So I'm trying to make sure I answer your question. It's a longer answer than I intended. But the point is, is that I think that we're, I, I think this is a, a somewhat a sticky change to the positive. And what's important that we do is to try to make it more sticky by the way we talk to each other. So it, it seems to me like so much of the work that you do is sort of like reshaping narratives. And I, as a foreign policy wonk, I love the, the word construct that you mentioned because there's this whole, you know, I, I deal with in foreign policy constructivism, the idea that our identities are constructed by the narratives that we're having. So that we're having. So if we reshape the narratives a little bit, then the sense of who we are changes a little bit along with it. So now that we've talked a little bit about sort of how some of the opinions have, sta- have changed uh, in aggregate, according to some of the statistics that are available relative to six years ago. I'd be curious, given the moment of time that we find ourselves in, what are some of the, the most prevalent narratives that you're hearing on all sides about the moment, the death of George Floyd, uh, the protests, the pandemic? It seems to me 
that a lot of people are talking about race right now in a way that perhaps we weren't even in, in recent times. And maybe that some white people now are coming to terms with the degree of, of racial inequality built into the system. And frankly, I'd say that I'm, I'm probably one of them. I always knew that black people were treated unfairly in a lot of ways, but somehow right now I feel more aware of how unfair that treatment is. So what, what are you hearing? And what, do you think that some of these narratives are, are more or less helpful than others? And how can we tweak them so that they're, they're more useful? Okay, so there's a, there's a pervasive narrative that we have to shift. And as I'm trying to adapt my messaging in this moment, I, I have been coming to a stronger conclusion about what is the critical thing to shift it. So the most important narrative that we have to shift is what might be called uh, the racist, non-racist binary. And that's, uh, I, I was first made aware of this, it was first clarified to me in the, the book White Fragility by uh, Robin DiAngelo, which I think is, it was at the top of the New York Times these days. So good for her. But basically, that's the idea that there are some people who are racist and bad and other people who are non-racist and good. And the racist and bad people, um, they, they, they think really negatively about other groups and they talk really negatively about them and they use, they use bad names. And as long as you don't do that, then you're in the non-racist and good group. And so I think that that, that fundamental, uh, that, that core thought is you know it's understandable that we might have come out of the 60s with that understanding but the, but that that core thought has limited the progress of the anti-racism movement because you know there's been a cultural shift in the last 50 60 years where you know you don't have people using the n word now uh, not in public although you can see people get fired for that who use it privately like that I don't know if you saw that um guy who was with the board of uh the Naval Academy alumni board who in, inadvertently broadcast on Facebook Live, a private conversation he was having with his wife. Yeah, and, it was uh, not good. Right. So I'm just saying that guy would never use N-word in public, but he's using it in private, which shows how he, on some level, really think. But my point is, is that even he would had enough sense to not use that word in public, right? So my point is, is that if, if, if we've, the standard, this, this sad, unfortunate, unhelpful standard based on the Racist, not racist binary we've had for the, the past several decades is if you don't if you don't use that those kind of la that kind of language you're you're fine you don't have to worry about being looked at as racist or being racist that by that that binary is incredibly counterproductive and so part of because it it, it helps us it helps us um not hold accountable a whole bunch of people and and um uh the people who have problematic views people who not only problematic views People who have problematic views, they're not even aware of. So, so that, that view eliminates the most important, one of the most important types of racism, and that's unconscious bias. So one of the things that is happening now is that the term unconscious bias has entered the public domain. This, this first, I, I was thrilled in 2015 when James Comey talked about it in a speech as FBI director. I was happy the next year when Hillary Clinton talked about it in a debate. But it is now becoming part of the public lexicon. That's vital. Because it, 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 it helps undermine the racist, non-racist binary. So one of the things that we're trying to, uh, one of the things I'm trying to help the culture do is to get out of this idea that only uh, the, all the races are people who use bad language all the time. No, uh, I would, we need to recast it to more like we're all infected by the virus, right? We're all infected by the racism virus. That includes people of color, right? I mean, the whole notion of internalized oppression is about 
internalizing that same virus, right? So, so part of the narrative that we're trying to cast is uh, trying to we're trying to uh, get people out of is the racist non racist binary. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> that is one reason why a focus of my work is getting white folks to tell their story of moments when they had when they noticed them, them having unconscious bias. I am increasingly recognizing that that people talking about that is critical. So essentially, essentially, we need to change being a quote unquote racist from a third degree capital offense to like a second degree <laughs> misdemeanor, right? It needs to be like a second degree misdemeanor. Like, like so, we, yeah, yeah, we do that. It's I shouldn't do it. We do it, but we need to get out of the idea that like nobody does that or it's a horrible crime to do that. So, um, a, hor- a horrible moral crime to do that. So thus, thus we, um, if we can make that transition and and here's the good news, every white person can do this by talking about moments in which they were, uh, they noticed their thoughts were biased to other people. Every, every white person can do that. And and I'm increasingly realizing that to, to, to create the shift we need among, in the culture that people getting comfortable thinking about those memories calling them up and telling them to people is a critical thing we have to do to shift the culture. Because if we're, you know, th- th- thus, if you're trying to tell somebody that they have racially problematic views, you're going to be much more persuasive if you can say, you know, I have those, I have views sometimes like that too, as opposed to you got a problem and I don't, which is, which is how people approach it now. So that invitation to recognize something is a much better, th- is much better than an accusation. And so part of the shift that we have to uh, further work on is people saying systemic racism exists. How do I know? Because I sometimes think that I sometimes am a victim of that myself. I sometimes think like that myself. That's a whole, that's one of the narrative shifts that we need to, we need to make. I'm going to take a, just a brief moment to kind of reflect on that a little bit. Cause I, in part, cause I think it may be helpful for some of our white listeners that I've, what, what you just said felt very resident for me. Cause I have had, I, I have indulged in fear of someone, usually another white person, calling me racist and going like, I just don't want to have to go through the the social <laughs> drama uh-huh. of that happening. So, you know, so so what I'm just gonna I'm just gonna be quiet in this situation because I might I might say something, you know, I might misstep, right? I may say something that, you know, I may go like, what about you know, like I, I may question something, right? I may say, like, what about X? And it's like, oh gosh, that's not well. Okay. And I have also had moments where I'm, where I've indulged in seeking the pat on the back mm-hmm. from either a person of color or a, <laughs> or just, you know, a, a, regardless of their color, kind of like frontline vanguard member. I've, uh-huh. I've felt that desire for somebody to be like, ah, yes, you're one of the good guys, right? right? You're not a racist white guy, Eric. Congratulations. And I'm like, where's my, you know, like part of my brain's like, where's my gold star? Right? right. I want the label. and. I've I've seen it make me performative at times, uh, oh, no, which I've. That's really honest. Like, can, can you can can you give a quick example of when that happened? Sure. Like, yeah, it was actually it was actually on Facebook. Uh, I'll I'll talk about the more positive version of it because I've actually I've done a good job like avoiding anyone using any you know ist or labeling me with any ist terms, racist, sexist, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mostly because I, despite my despite my career of choice here, I'm I'm 
you know, e- either good at choosing my words wisely or good at keeping my head down or, or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, the time that it was the time for me that I, I felt that pat on the back that I wanted was it was on Facebook. And maybe you're even listening right now, but I, I won't name the person. Um, this is all just like friends locked. So <laughs> I, yeah, I just don't want to name any names. But long story short, I posted something about the change I had seen in the New York Times or the graph I'd seen in the New York Times about how uh, people white people's approval for the movement Black Lives Matter went from underwater. It was like underwater two years ago to like slightly above water. And then boom, right after George Floyd, it just went through right. the roof. And I had a comment on this about, you know, because I'm all about bridge building about, about like, hey, we can welcome the folks who are jumping on the bandwagon, right? Like, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, my advice was, I was trying to give the advice, like, don't give anyone a hard time for being late to the party. And what I had said there, what I added to it was that I was fairly late to the party. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I wasn't starting to think about this after George Floyd died, but I certainly thought about it a lot more. And uh, it was a friend of mine from high school. He's a, he's a black man. He's got a family. And Oh gosh, he even had like the fist emoji, a black one and a white one together. And he said, you know, we're, we're, it's great to have you or it's, or something like that. And I, I realized after I looked back on it, I was like, yeah, you know, part of my brain was like, yes, yes. (laughs) Right. I got the, I got the gold star. I'm the good guy. And, and it was of course through some, to some extent, like it was a demonstration of my humility or a humble demonstration of like kind of my own path to, to getting mm-hmm. here that that invoked that response. But I realized that my brain was like kind of like thirsty for that approval from the world. And mm-hmm. certain people, perhaps, you know, in part based on the color of the skin, have the ability to social, you know, to give me that broader social approval in front of my friends, go me. So so you asked me for mm-hmm. that example, that mm-hmm. there it is. Yeah. yeah, you know, I get it. So I mean, and that, that raises all sorts of dilemmas. Like if you're trying to grow a movement, you know, how do you what are your standards for that movement? And and like what do you put people through, right? So, yeah, a, a part of what I have um, complained about, not so much in writing, but I'm thinking about doing that, is people who are activist writers who, like, all they want to give people who are late to the party is they want to they want to remind them that don't be don't look for a lot of kudos for coming to the party, right? They bring a lot of attitude to. <laughs> it's about time y'all got here, right? That, that, right which is maybe understandable, but that's not that's not necessarily the way to grow a movement, right? Now, what people are trying to uh, combat is is a tendency for people to come in and say, "Hey, I'm I'm here, Ralph. I'm, I'm here now, ready to take over your movement," right? Which, which you know, which is I, right. I understand that frustration, and people have seen sort of white folks come in and they're they're ready to take, be in charge now, right? Or or not not ready to do the long term work. The the or the long the long term self education that's necessary to really get up to speed. So I get that frustration. On the other hand, if you if all you give people is grief, but come to the party late, they ain't gonna stay at the party, right? So come on now, right? So so there's a balance in that. Um, so I get what you're saying. Thank you for giving that example of uh, that performative that performative aspect. But w- what I'm saying is that what we need to do is to shift away from like you're nervous and somebody's going to call you racist to more of an acceptance that we all have our stories and we have racist ideas like, like what, what what if that was the what if we shifted the culture like that like so that it, it, let us let us have a basic assumption that we're all infected by the virus it's just a matter of how much and how it comes out so i think that that if that was true 
you have a variety of positive impacts. So, for example, it makes it it, it creates a certain humility within the anti-racism uh, movement. And that's vital to, to, to try to combat that kind of woker than thou thing where people are hypercritical of each other. Because you see, see some sign that ah oh, you're you're still a racist, and that that becomes a whole people get get raked over the coals for that in ways that are not productive to movement building and are not productive to the compassion and grace that we're trying to have society filled with. That's one benefit, but it, but even a, a bigger benefit is if we can change being a racist or having racially problematic thoughts, I often don't even use the term racist because it, <laughs> the, the brand has been, has, has been cast such that like nobody wants to be that. So, but we can call it that for the moment. But if we can shift it towards everybody has, has uh, had racist thoughts, then when you're talking to the person who doesn't believe racism is a problem, you're less of, about doing something that's accusing them of being something that you are not. Instead, you're saying, well, you know, I notice that sometimes um, black people go on the elevator with me and I know I notice myself like moving away from them or I notice myself uh, when a black person comes and gives a presentation at my job. I notice that if, if it's a good presentation, I'm like, ooh, he's he's a smart person. And I don't do that for white people, whatever, however it shows up for you. Right. So by people con- doing um, shifting our cultural conventions around admitting that we have impacts both in both of those domains. I would also add, I think this is true that given the tensions between white and non-white people, white people owning up to the fact that they have racially problematic thoughts too, I think that also is a humility-based trust-building move if you, if you do it at the right time. If you don't do it performatively, but you do it like, yeah, of course, I know I have a lot to learn, not only about the issues in general, but how this shows up within me. I think, so I think that there's, there's multiple, multiple benefits from people admitting to little moments that they have some racial shame around, because I think it it ultimately shows us in a positive direction to how we grapple with these big, huge structural problems that we also need to talk about. And I, I actually wrote down this quote from uh, the philosophy page on your white, uh, I'm sorry, on your website, the White Ally Toolkit, um, and it just it feels like it's apropos to what you just said. So I'm, I'm just going to read it. Um, This is even though racial anxiety is a minimal or non-existent factor in same race interactions, and I bolded this part, white allies, too, often have negative reactions to racism skeptics that make it hard for the ally to be in a listening mode and that these reactions tend to shut down useful dialogue. Do you have any other examples of that, maybe from some of your seminars that might be uh, useful for folks who want to be helpful allies that maybe have found themselves engaging in that sort of negative reaction when they encounter racism skeptics? Well, sure. I have a, I have a couple of ways of amplifying that point. So the first one is a poll that I ran across that was really disturbing um, that has to do with talking across divides. So a poll was done by Washington Post in 2017. Actually, it was done by Pew, the reporting Washington Post. And basically, it looked at how people are talking about uh, Mr. Trump. And basically, uh, the, the, one of the questions asked people, do you find conversations uh, with people who feel differently about Trump than you do? Do you find them stressful and frustrating? Or do you find them stimulating and interesting? And, as a, and of course, Trump is a divisive figure. So 59% of people found those conversations st- stressful and frustrating. Now, but if you break that down, here's what you got. People who like Trump, conservative white folks, found that uh, 52% of them found those conversations with people who who didn't like Trump to be stressful and frustrating. Uh, Black folks who 
lean Democrat don't like Trump, they found those conversations stressful and frustrating at a level of 56%, so a little higher, right? Latino folks found those conversations stressful and frustrating at a level of 61%. Hmm. White folks found those conversations, white liberal people don't like Trump, found those conversations stressful and frustrating at 74%. (laughs) 74%. So so on a a basic political level, what that means is that the people who have the most capacity by by the nature of uh, proximity because, you know, Trump's, Trump's support is, is very low in the of color community. The people who have the greatest capacity to talk to persuadable Trump voters, i.e. white, uh, white people are the, uh, who don't like Trump, are the least likely to have the conversation. Now that, that, to me, that's just like that's a whole there's a whole cultural thing of people not stepping up to not stepping up to the work. I mean, I started this project, as I told you all last time, because I looked at the I, I looked at Trump's election as a massive white ally fail because a whole bunch of people did not have the conversation about just the question of whether Trump was too racially problematic to elect. So I'm saying is there's a, there's a something that's happening among white progressive people where I just can't handle that conversation. And I'm thinking, why can't you handle it? Like a, a whole bunch of people, my, my message is that a whole bunch of people of color have had to figure out a way to talk to and interact with um, people that white people who didn't have racially cool views for hundreds of years because those people they work in the same house together they're working for they're working for them in in whatever kind of not equal relationships where they still had to have forge a relationship so they had to do something with that anger and frustration and channel it and stay engaged with those people and maybe persuade them to to be nicer to them and maybe try to talk them out of their racist views one way or another so I um, so the the fact that a whole bunch of white people are like I can't handle that conversation. They can't they can't talk about Trump. They can't talk about race. They can't talk about whatever these divisive issues are. And people need to get people need to figure out what they have to do spiritually and philosophically to get past that. Now, and I try to offer tools to do that. One of those tools that we discuss is kind of calming me down and relaxing. But this but being committed to what's your objective. And my objective is to try to meet somebody with compassion, uh, to with empathy. Uh, and, and why? Not only because it's good for you spiritually, it's the most pers- the most effective way to persuade them. So what I'm saying, I guess my just to go back to your point, that is one that disconnection, that willingness of white progressive folk to just say to opt out, to be too angry, to and then because they don't want to, they don't they don't want to you know make it so they can't talk to their grandma anymore or their the parent. So I'm just not going to talk about it. Then we avoid all these conversations about like. The country, we're not talking about America anymore because we can't talk about quote unquote politics because it's too divisive. It's divisive. You need to talk about it differently. So it's not divisive. And, and there's ways to do that. So uh, I hope I answered your question. My point is that people need to shift their own attitude so they can have conversations. I've been told in, in uh, workshops, people said, you know, I'm, um, I'm not talking to my cousin. He's a Trump supporter. I'm not talking to him until Trump's out of office. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, like these are people. These are people that you, you have, you, you used to play with them as a kid. You have cried at funerals and passed the hanky back and forth, and you are really not going to talk to your cousin because this dude is in office. That's just ridiculous. So, it not only is it ridiculous from a human standpoint, it also isn't helpful to the to the progressive movement that you might be trying to create. So, people need to get over themselves, figure out what they have to do to do what people of color have been doing for a long time, which is to feel the anger and to not operate on it. So 
So I'm hoping I'm hoping answer a question that was long and involved. But I hope uh, what I'm saying is, is that there's uh, we're, what I'm trying to do is to shift the culture. My focus is on progressive people, although my methods could be used by other people. Uh, we could talk about that. Um, my focus is to shift people away from this, like avoiding. I, I just can't deal with that. No, no, you can deal with that. And it's important that you deal with that. And one more thing. Um, let's remember that all this division is being stoked by Vladimir Putin. Like he, there's people who are trying to get us to hate each other. So part of the, uh, the reason I'm happy to be promoting a kind of compassion-based approach is because it's trying to be an inoculation from the foreign interference in our culture that is being paid for purposefully and with not good intention by foreign actors. We need to be, we need to figure out how can we combat that. So maybe as a follow-up question, um, and I apologize in advance, I think it'll be a bit of a long question, but um, so, so tying together what you said and what Eric said a moment ago about the performative aspect here, something that I was not really aware about until the, over the last month is sort of what it means to be a performative ally. And a good friend of mine and a, a good listener of the show brought this to my attention, how, you know, there is some frustration with white people who are maybe, you know, expressing their frustration in the right direction, but, you know, they're, they're showing up on Facebook and uh, the allegation is they're not doing much beyond that. So, so something that I've heard in the last couple of weeks is that while it's clearly good and necessary that white people be involved in an active part of, of the movement to seek racial equality under the law, white people should also try more to amplify black voices, listen more than talk. So I guess my question for you then is, how how should white allies think about walking this line of being actively engaged and not just performative while still really trying to make a difference? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the uh, good news the, the the bad news is that these cross racial interactions are difficult. Cross racial collaboration is is uh, is fraught uh, with discomfort, lack of trust, pain, all sorts of things like that. So while on the one hand it is really good for white folks to want to join the anti racism movement and be a part of it, there's no question that doing so has its own complexities. So as an illustration. In a couple of hours from now, I'm going to I'm going to be doing the first in a series of uh, uh, webinars for some folks in uh, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, 
who we've agreed to try to we try to help them like channel all this new white energy and that wants to be involved in racism. And so we're doing we're going to give them three different uh, one hour, uh, hour and a half seminars, each of which is tied to a track of ongoing work. So one of them is going to be about educating yourself about the issues. Another one's going to be how to talk to other white people about racism. And the third one's going to be the complexities of working with people sort of shoulder to shoulder if you if you want to volunteer and do something actively. That last one has a lot of complexity because of the nature of, you know, the problems around white saviorism, problems around microaggressions. Like if, you, if you're trying to work shoulder to shoulder with people of color and who you just come to the party, they've been in it for a long time, then there's complexities that have to be managed. I, I encourage people taking that on because people working side by side is, is critical. Now, the reason that we're going through all that is because there's many ways to work on yourself and to join the effort. So one of them is self-education. One of them is talking to other white people. And one of them is working um, side by side for people of, with people of color. So what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to outline is that all of those ways of working on yourself are better than doing nothing, which is a whole bunch of, which is largely what a lot of white folks have done for years, not done anything because they don't recognize this issue is important. And it's, it's their issue too, that racism affects it, it messes up their America also. So I'm in favor of all of those things. And if people, one of the reasons we're trying to sort people into different sort of streams of work is to let them, is to help them make good choices about what they want to do next. It's a, this, this problem is, is not going to go away really quickly. It requires long-term engagement and people need to make choices about what they, what they do and what they get satisfaction out of. So if you're doing the third thing, which is collaborating with people, then of course, prioritizing of you know black and Latino, whatever of color voices is vital because the, it is those people who have um, who have been doing this work for a long time and whose on some level racism is a problem that white folks created that impacts people of color. So then, of course, the voices of people of color need to be stronger in that. So, I, so I I agree with that. But the reason I went through all all of those uh, different layers just now. Is because I think I think that the big thing that white folks don't do, as I've said before, is talk to other white people, right? So, so in, on that, then then your the complexity is not about lifting up other voices; it's about owning up to the situation that we have at hand, including and and best and best, including your participation in it, so you can help create a new kind of conversation with other white people about that fact that we do have a collective problem. So. I guess I hope I'm answering your question. Yes, the uh, lifting of other black voices is a critical thing to do in the track of working in collaboration. But there's other things you can do that don't have that complexity, that have a different kind of complexity and different kind of challenge that are also vital to the anti-racism movement. Am I answering your question? You are. And I, and I think what I'm taking away from this is, you know, at a very high level is that there's a lot of complexity here, right? You, you brought that up a lot of the times. And I think that with complex issues, and this kind of ties back into your general message, there needs to be room for compassion because as we manage these these difficult waters, you know, sometimes you're going to find yourself in a situation where maybe you do make a misstep. And actually, you know, I, I chatted with a few li listeners before the show um, who have been fans for a while. And one question that I got from a listener was, what do what can a white ally do if they make a misstep in a conversation, you know, and what might that misstep look like? And I'd be curious to hear your response here. But I mean, the complexity of the issues that we're dealing with, I think, 
you, you know, it goes back to that Dalai Lama quote where intention is so important. But, you know, if, if I'm a white ally and maybe I am being too performative or I'm not listening enough and I make that misstep, how can I how can I resolve that in the course of a conversation? Right. Well, I think what is important to remember uh, in, in, again, interaction with people of color uh, and you're you're new to the game and they're less less so i think that the humility piece is very important right i th- i think i've seen a couple of people at protests saying signs like sorry s- sorry i'm late i've had a lot you know i've got a lot to learn right so part of it i think that stance of humility that you know there have been other people who who've been dealing with this for a long time and know more than me is a useful thing to remember so that's so that's one thing i think what you said about intention is very important and and, and here here we go um, another thing that I teach is the whole, it's very basic, the, the intent impact distinction. Part of what I think happens is that because people, uh, a whole bunch of people of color have, um, been so negatively impacted by white people with positive intention and do, do you know, microaggressions and all those things like that, that, that they, they do things that have positive intention, but negative <laughs> impact that there's been among some, uh, some people of color or some people on the kind of anti-racist left is like, Intent doesn't matter. Impact the only thing that matters, and I, I I disagree with that. I think that I, I even think the term microaggressions is not sufficiently complex. I think we we'd, we'd be better off if we had a term like inadvertent dignity violation because it because it includes both the violation part and the inadvertent part. So I think that um, I think that part of uh, as a conflict resolution tool, part of what people need to remember is intent and impact both matter. And I think if you're a white person who has stepped in it. I think it's important to hear that there's been a negative impact that you've created that you're not aware of. Now, one of the one of the difficulties now is that because people are there's so much hurt that's been processed over time is that uh, as I said, sometimes the the people people of color even are not they're so tired of dealing with uh the, the, with the impact and and then people hide my well I didn't intend to cause a problem, right? Okay. So th- there there's uh, sometimes there's not a sufficient recognition that intent and impact both matter. So you have, might have to absorb uh, some criticism that, about the impact you had. You, you need to not, you know, sometimes it's not helpful to keep talking about, but I intended, but I intended, but I intended. You know that, right? So you have to absorb the negative impact and recognize that, um, that intent and impact both matter and you're not giving feedback on the impact. It doesn't mean that your intent was different and it doesn't mean you shouldn't show up the next time. It just means that be more be more aware. You do get some people, or not, not a small amount, who recognize the impact and intent that don't matter. But my, here's my point. My point is that as, as a conflict resolution tool to bring up, okay, this was a positive, this was a positive intent, this had a negative impact. Don't, can't those both exist simultaneously? Yes. Right. Okay. Then, then I think that I think that not only thinking like that, but sometimes verbalizing that is useful. But yeah, there's still going to be there's still going to be times in which you, you, your impact was more. You're not the first person that had negative impact, so there's a whole wound thing that happens. You, you weren't the you're not the first person to say, "Can I touch your hair?" Right. So even if it's all well intended, you're not the first person to do that. So <clears throat> it's important to recognize that there's an impact that's beyond. Uh, it, it might seem small to you, but it's actually big to them. So I think that uh, if we're looking for what can white allies do, this is this all of this is part of the reason why. You know, I might overfocus on my thing. This is all the reason why I think that the 
you can always have an impact with the people whom you know by having a different kind of conversation. Like you shouldn't. So that, so, so, and th- that's the great opportunity here. We've now seen this huge thing that's happening worldwide. And so there's something, there's something happening that we can all talk about, but we got to do it smartly. And that's what's important to do. One thing we, this may be changing the topic a little bit in part because in part, because I, th- I think, you know, I, th- I think the broader goal of having, you know, these conversations lead to changes in people's understanding and disposition and bias, or at least awareness of bias. And that change in Americans leads to outcomes. And some of it's just how they treat, you know, fellow American people of color every day. And, and some of it's changes in policies, you know, because if people, enough people mm-hmm. want something, it's more likely to happen in Congress. And one of the things, you know, we've done a little bit of research on police unions and a little bit of the history of policing and its militarization, very, like very limited compared to what, you know, you, one, one could spend, you know, I'm prob- probably there's a lot of like PhDs coming out about this, hopefully, which would be, which would be great so that we have some scholars that know it really well. But, you know, as we're, I, you know, as folks are finding themselves in a place where they can potentially influence a group of people or, or influence their local government, have you done, and feel free to say like, no, I don't want to talk about this, but, but have you done <laughs> any of your own research that makes you say, that makes you say, Hey, I have a, I have a really effective, or I believe in a very effective path forward for government institutions, in particular, the police in the United States and what we can do, what we can change through policy that can, you know, improve outcomes for black Americans and Americans of color. So I know people talk about defunding, people even talk about abolishing, there's certain kinds of reforms people are talking about, etc. So I don't I have not done uh, research on that question. But your question makes me want to think of uh, want to make makes me want to make your question. I have not done research on that question, right. but your question makes me want to convey a way of thinking about all of this that I think is relevant mm. to your question, and I want your listeners to hear. Excellent. And that is the following. And I, I wrote about this in an op-ed in the Greensboro News and Record a few years ago. The race is very complex, but we can one way that is helpful to think about the racial divide is. This, the racial divide, divide what we should do about race, it uh, largely comes down to two questions and then a correlate to the third question. So question number one, which we referred to earlier a little bit, is can you be racist inadvertently, i.e., does unconscious bias exist? So you can answer yes or no on that. Um, but for the most part, people who think that racism is an issue think that that's a unconscious bias is a big phenomenon and matters a lot. And the people who, as I said earlier, people who have a, a, I would say a more limited view of racial issues don't think that that's real. Racism is calling people bad names. Second question, does the racist structures of the past, are they, do they uh, impact the present? So if you have people with a racialized analysis, think of course these structures in the past impact. And then (laughs) People who don't have a racialized analysis or have a more a conservative associated racialized analysis say, oh, no, those things in the past, the past, we, 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 that ended 50 years ago, so we're fine. And then the third question is, are there any moral implications of either of the answers, if the answer to either two questions is yes. Now, and you do have people who, you know, I would imagine 
You have uh, libertarians who say, yes, you have unconscious bias, and yes, the structures in the past matter, but no, there's no moral implications of that for now because of their belief in freedom of market, freedom, individual freedom and freedom of markets, et cetera. But for the most part, so accepting those people aside for a second, if, you, if their answer is no, no, then of course the answer is no, right? No, there's no unconscious bias. No, the structures don't matter. Of course, there's no moral implications of that. And the people on the other side are like, yes, there's unconscious bias and racism now. Yes, the racism in the past matters. And of course, yes, there is, there's moral implications of that. Part of what we can do, I, I just wanted to add, um, give that to people because I think that with all the complexities, I think that that little system kind of makes things clearer. Now, you can apply that to, you know, how does that apply to any particular institution? How does that apply to how we think about police, right? So part of the reason that people uh, who are talking about defund the police even though they want to defund it, they also want to uh, help. They want cops to become less biased, and we have the resistance to that, right? Because they know that the, that that people can be biased and not know it, right? Even though there's legions of evidence that that show the bias that happens in the police system at, at every level, at the stop level, at the arrest level, at the searches, at the parole, like it, it, all up and down the train, right? All up and down the chain of of um, as people are passed along, and then there's the structural question, right? Um, you can look at the question of how do ex- patterns and practices and existing structures that it used to exist, how does that affect what we're doing now? On some level, that the, what I just said is the core of a racial and equity lens, a racial equity lens. So part of what I think uh, any institution, whether it's police or not, need to be encouraged to do is to adopt that racial equity lens by asking those questions and saying, okay, are there any moral implications of that? And the argument is going to be how big a price is, how big of a problem is bias, how much these structures in the past matter to and other moral implications of that. That's where the argument will be. So I, while I don't have a uh, answer to your question on the issue of police abuse, that the, the, the real issue, I think, of any institution is what's the degree to which you can get people to adopt a racial equity lens and apply that to whatever institution we're talking about? It seems like a big part of what this process needs to be about is broadening the tent. And that's something that we talk about a lot here at Reconsider on all sorts of issues. And that certainly seems to be one here. And so I, I'll, I'll be candid uh, to listeners right now because this is, I, I wrote an article on our website called um, State Abuse of Power is Everyone's Problem. So this is very much, I'm coming from one position on this and I, I'm asking for your feedback on it. I'd be curious if you agree or disagree. It, is this a reasonable way of broadening the tent where if you something that has been particularly shocking to me in the last couple of weeks has been how many videos um, there are of, of police unprovoked police violence where there's really no rationale for it and of people of all color and, and clearly people of of color incur this far more often on a regular basis. But I mean, there the one that just really got me was this journalist that was arrested on live television, even though he was being very calm and, and saying, you know, put me wherever you want. We're not trying to be in your way. And he was asked um, why he was being arrested and he wasn't told no, no habeas corpus. So is, is the idea that re, perhaps not always, depending on who you're talking to, depending on the context in which you find yourself, framing this as a state abuse of power, that could that be an effective way to broaden the tent? Because clearly there are people on both sides of the aisle 
that that are concerned with government overreach. And I think something that you could say fairly objectively at this point is that the war on terror has been kind of a miserable failure in terms of what it aimed to achieve, which was a Middle East uh, that was structured more in the U.S.'s interest. And now instead of a balanced region, we have an Iran that essentially controls Iraq and uh, foreign militias all over the place. And part of the policies of the war on terror was arming the police domestically in the U.S. So could that state abuse of power is all of our problems be an effective reframing or do you see issues with that? I think it's effective in a lot of cases, but in some other cases, it's going to cause a distraction. It's funny that you asked that question because in my article in Medium, uh, in a, subsequent to the one that you mentioned, uh, I've written, uh, I give people a kind of a dialogue guide to how to talk about these uh, the, the protests. One of the things that I say in an article is be careful about talking about the police abuses during the protest, because my intuition is that somebody who is, you know, doesn't think racism is a problem, is unequivocally pro-police, I think the real problem is uh, in any kind of complaints about that, then by talking about the clearly abusive behavior in these protests, you potentially create a whole new line of argument that isn't helpful to your goal of trying to get people to talk about the, uh, the, the everyday police abuse in, in black communities. So I do think that I think that the police are overly militarized. So I, I share that. But I'm just saying from a tactical standpoint, if you're talking to somebody who, and uh, your goal is to try to uh, have them revisit some deep beliefs they have about police behavior. I'm not sure that talking about police behavior in the highly rarefied air and tense situations of essentially crowd control over a contentious issue is the way to open their minds up to the everyday police abuse that happens in black communities. So, so now, so, um, so I, I do think that there's a, these things are related. I just worry that from a tactical standpoint, if you're talking to, Somebody who is not like a super policy wonk, somebody who's just like a regular, reasonably informed citizen who has deeply held beliefs that I worry that talking about that other issue might give you another grounds for uh, disagreement as opposed to agreement. So um, that's now as a general matter, I think that um, if, if, you're, if you're talking to the kind of person who, you know, data matters, like for a whole bunch of people, data doesn't matter. In fact, we know that only. Uh, I think 23% are something called scientifically curious. That is their beliefs, they will will change their beliefs based on data. And that's conservative and liberal, right? So that that is one reason why in my projects, I encourage people to do, to focus on storytelling and not the conveying of facts because facts usually don't work anyway. But if you're talking to somebody who who facts matter, then then this, a broader conversation about like militarization of the police might be helpful to you, but I just would, I, the caution is that you're opening up another line of disagreement that makes it harder to to talk about the everyday um, racing problematic behaviors in the police, even though they're related. But I think that, I, think, I would suggest people be careful about that. Well, thanks for that feedback. And I'm going to give that that position of mine a little bit more thought. I may reconsider it. I, as, as a sort of a follow up with elections coming up in November, I, I think part of what makes current moment so, I mean, interesting isn't the right word because, but, you know, all of this is happening and we have elections five months away and it's not just presidential elections, it's local elections, it's, it's everything. 
do you do you have any thoughts as to how people who are politically active can you know use their their vote use the ballot box to try to affect change in a in a positive way or or is that really outside of the purview of the the focus on conversation that that you tend to have oh let me let me be clear brother my book compassion transforms contempt is all about what white progressive people need to do in order to influence the election. I mean, this would be very clear. Like, like that, that book is all about, it's more of a handbook. It's like 100 pages long. It's more of a, available at whiteallytoolkit.com. The book is all about telling progressive white people, if you want to influence the election, you need to talk to your, the, the, the non-progressive people in your circle differently, right? So, so I, I think the conversation matters a lot to the election. And, and, and one of the rationales, so the, the, there is that, but I also am suggesting that we need to think about what's going to happen after this election. No matter what happens in the election, this country is going to be more divided. So we need to start practicing the skills of talking across the I like Trump, I don't like Trump divide, the conservative liberal divide. We need to, we need to start practicing that because what we don't want to happen, even if, even if Trump gets defeated, we don't want his presidency to represent to, to, to ultimately be looked at as a, <clears throat> a time in American history where people became even more divided uh, more permanently so, or more irretrievably. So, so while I do, voting matters and conversation matters to voting. Uh, so I just want to make sure that that's clear. Yeah, I think that the, the, that the, ballot, uh, uh, the ballot box matters. And I think that, let's also remember, as I said before, we're being attacked uh, and will continue to be attacked by foreign agents who want us to not like each other, who want to degrade our democracy and degrade our discourse. But that's another reason for us to figure out how to talk across the divide. So, yeah, these elections matter. And, and of course, they especially matter because part of what's happening now, part of what's happening is that we're dealing with the demographic shifts and we're dealing with them earlier than we expected. Like, you know, everybody knows that whole 2042 black people become a minority thing. Well, part of what we're dealing with is the implications of that. And with some people who are not happy with those shifts and who think that it is their, it, what's, what's important for them to do politically is to uh, hold on to the past and not, not give up, not give up their, um, the structures that have been in place of who's in power, who controls things, who controls our monuments, who controls our narrative, who controls our structures, right? That's, that's what you're seeing versus other people are saying, well, wait a minute now, it's a new day. And, uh, uh, we need to we need to revisit some of that. So this and this election represents that. My hope is that we can find a way to have the election and start shifting our culture so we can deal with no matter what happens, we can be less divided, uh, less divided, less divided culture. All right. So, Dr. Camp, I know you've got a boogie. If it were up to us, we'd hold you all day, but we can't. And I, love uh, I know we've got this so much. Fun. Yeah. We, we go longer than we expect every time. It is a delight. Yeah. And we're obviously, again, especially at this moment, um, I think it's so important for us to be able to hear, hear from, you know, I, I was going to, I was going to say you're the expert. I don't know if I have enough expertise to, to claim the, that you're the expert, but you've been a fantastic resource, you know, for, for Xander and me and how we think about this. I hope, you know, I hope a lot of our listeners have already gotten to take advantage of all the work that you've been doing. But if someone, you know, if someone on our show or that's that's listening to our show, especially, you know, a white, a white American is is feeling fired up and feeling like, 
I, I, I want to do something to help, right? We've talked about a lot of different stuff, but sort of like, what's your parting thought for them about what they can do and how they can get started? Got you. That's a great question. One of the things that I'm trying to get people to do is to, is to really think that they can do something. So, of course, everybody should go to whiteallytoolkit.com for a number of great resources. But beyond that, what I really hope people can do is to start some reflection on how they've been impacted by racism, i.e. when they've had racially problematic thoughts. They didn't have to they didn't have to go do something. They didn't have to close the door in somebody's face. They didn't have to throw a brick at somebody. They didn't have to call somebody a name. But just when they noticed, they had thoughts that they're not proud of. And then start telling that story. And in a way that gives it some weight, but not too much weight. Weight enough that it matters, but not so much weight that they're flagellating themselves. And, this, and to say, you know, have you ever had thoughts like that? That shift to talking about these issues among other white people is just so vital. It's vital to shift our culture so that we can grapple with these big systemic issues. But if we can't talk about this interpersonally, it's going to be hard to talk about those issues. So I want people to read and become educated. I want people to think about what, what is the collaborative effort in the community they want to join people of color with. That's all fine. But tomorrow, they can talk to somebody they know about the racist thoughts that they've had and see if that person is willing to talk about that too. That is going to go a long way to creating the nation that we need. I think that's as wonderful a place to end this conversation as any. We definitely want to let you go on time so you can get to your next appointment. But listeners, check out whiteallytoolkit.com. Check out Dr. Kemp's book, Equipping Anti-Racism Allies, and his other book, Compassion Transforms Contempt. We'll have all of this in the show notes at reconsidermedia.com. Dr. Kemp, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all so much. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 